I haven't met you yet, my name is Scott. It's a joy to be with you. I serve as one of the pastors here. I wonder, what are you in danger from? We live in a world that is hyper-aware of the dangers around us. Uh, through social media, through science, we've, ex- we've understood and then proclaimed our understanding of the universe. And what we've found is that the universe is a dangerous place. Uh, most obviously, there are physical dangers uh, from people and nature alike. So some people intentionally try to hurt others perhaps through abuse or violence. Others do so unintentionally, maybe through drunk driving or food poisoning. But of course, people aren't the only danger. You know, there are viruses and bacteria. There are wild animals and extreme weather. Lately, our society has been focused on emotional and mental dangers. So colleges create safe spaces where students aren't exposed to ideas that might trigger them. We're rightly aware of the scars from emotional abuse and manipulation. And it's because the world is so dangerous that we are often so concerned, right? It's why parents stay up late, uh, waiting for the kids to return home after they've gotten their driver's license. It's why, as a society, we spend so much money on police and military. It's why we buy alarm systems and lock our doors. We like to think that the danger is out there. And inside, we, we want a place of safety and security. Yet what if the greatest danger is closer to home? What if our greatest threat isn't the world around us per se, but the world inside of us? This morning we turn to Hebrews 3, verses 7 to 19, as we consider the danger that we truly must be on guard against. This isn't a danger you can solve with armed guards or N95 masks. This is an enemy much more subtle, much more resilient. This is a foe that we must fight together. So let me encourage you to turn to Hebrews 3 if you have a Bible or on page 13 of the bulletins. Uh, So far in Hebrews, the authors reminded us that Jesus is better. You remember, he's better than the prophets because he speaks the true and final revelation of God. He's better than the angels because they were just ministering spirits, but he's the ruler over the cosmos. He's better than Adam, right? Because he didn't succumb to death, he defeated death. He dethroned death from its rule over humanity, and he has reinstated humanity, mankind, at the pinnacle and ruler over creation. By his death, he made atonement for sins. By his resurrection, he proved that death had been defanged. And then last week, we saw that Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, Jesus is the glory behind the glory. Jesus is the builder of God's house, of which Moses was a part. Moses was a servant in the house. He was a great servant. But Jesus is the son over the house. And therefore, let us hold fast to Christ. That's what we saw last week. And so we arrive at our passage this morning in chapter 3. We'll have three points, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. Guard your hearts from unbelief so that no one falls away. Guard your hearts from unbelief so that no one falls away. 
So look with me at Hebrews 3, and I'm actually going to begin reading in the middle of the last verse of verse 6. So beginning in the middle of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 7 to 12, entitled, Danger Close. Excuse me, 7 to 11. The reason we began in verse 6, reading there, is because the context is necessary because, you know, our passage begins with, therefore. And we've done this a hundred times, we'll do it again. When you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore? All right, hallelujah, that's right. Uh, There's an argument going on, a logical train of thought that we need to understand here in Hebrews 3. And so it is. That verse 6 basically says, to be God's house, you need to keep holding fast to Christ. What does that mean for you and me? Like, like, okay, but so what? Well, therefore, don't harden your hearts. That's the, the main idea of this first point. But the other doesn't just state that outright. He actually appeals to Holy Scripture to back up his point. So you notice the wording of verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes from Psalm 95. We've talked a lot about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in the previous weeks. Uh, Here we're reminded of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and his role in redemptive history. You know, you notice that the Holy Spirit, he speaks because he is a he. He is not an impersonal force. The Spirit is not some mystical fog who descends upon a person or a congregation. He's not a force field or a superpower. He is a person who speaks. In some ways, I think the older translation, the Holy Ghost, gets at this a bit better. Uh, The Spirit is someone who communicates to us. And this is really important. Notice the tense of the verb in verse 7. It's not just that the Holy Spirit spoke in the past. No, it's that he speaks. 
he is still speaking, even today. The point is that the Spirit spoke through David in 1000 BC, when Psalm 95 was originally written. The Spirit was speaking to the Hebrew congregation around 70 AD, probably in Rome. And the Spirit is speaking to us today. Trinity Church Bedford, October 22nd, 2023. As one Christian denomination emphasizes, God is still speaking. Amen. That's true. But we also need to be careful to understand how God speaks today. You remember from chapter 1 that it's not through dreams or visions or prophets anymore that's normative, right? That belonged to the era before Christ, when God spoke to the, uh, by the prophets to the fathers. Nor does the Holy Spirit speak today by reimagining the faith or remaking Christianity according to our own liking and our, our own ideals. To be clear, God is not speaking through newly invented doctrines or beliefs. Instead, the Holy Spirit speaks in the Scriptures. The Bible isn't a dead old book which we then have to make relevant, right? So I like history, and I like reading primary sources from way back when. They're really interesting. You get an insight into them then, right, and how they thought. And what you're doing when you read, you know, some, you know, the, the Federalist Papers or when you read, you know, some sermon from hundreds of years ago, you're trying to kind of like read that and think about, okay, that was back then and how do I apply it today? And, you know, but it was, it was alive and well and it was for then. And I've got to do this translation work of applying it to today that's really foreign to what it originally was. But yes, friends, the Bible isn't like that. What does Hebrews 4 say? The word of God is living and active. When we come to the scriptures, we don't come to a dead book that we've got to import meaning and significance to, but it is alive. The Holy Spirit speaks. And so Psalm 95 isn't relegated to the past, but through it, the Spirit directly addresses this Hebrew congregation and us today. And he says to us, do not harden your hearts. He reinforces this point. The Spirit reminds us uh, of what happened when one group of people did harden their hearts against God. It's what we read about in Deuteronomy 1. It originally showed up in Numbers 14. Deuteronomy 1 is a, a summary. And so you notice in verse 9 that we get a description of Israel's sin when they did harden their hearts. It was in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Now, we know that subordinates are not supposed to test their superiors, right? Newly commissioned second lieutenants in the Marine Corps don't go up to the commandant, the four-star general in charge, and quiz him on Marine Corps history. Newly drafted NFL players don't go up to Bill Belichick and quiz him and test him to see whether he is the football acumen. But you might do that these days. No, that would be profoundly disrespectful, wouldn't it? It would be profoundly foolish to assume that you, a newly commissioned second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, you've been in for like a day, that you know more than this military officer who's been in for 40 years. That would just be the height of foolishness and pride. 
And yet, friends, what could be more disrespectful and foolish than sinful human beings putting God to the test? He who is the source of all that is good and right. He who is wise beyond comprehension. He who created the world and governs it and guides it and knows exactly what's going on with every single person on planet Earth and outside of planet Earth. I mean, guys, it is just the height of folly to test God. Because here's the thing. If you were to test God, how would you know whether or not he passed the test? I mean, with what standard can we judge God that is above God? Sinful, fallible, finite human wisdom? Well, that's not exactly as blameless and righteous and wise as we sometimes think. Now, is it? Yet this is exactly what Israel did in the rebellion. This was even though they saw God's works. Did you catch that? The Exodus was nothing if not a massive demonstration of God's glory. From the plagues, to the Passover, to the Red Sea, to manna in the wilderness, to water from the rock. God did all these magnificent signs, and you would have thought, if you're like, Okay, Israel's seen all this. Surely, they're going to respond with faith and obedience and trust in God. Surely, they're going to listen to him. But it wasn't so. Therefore, verse 10 says, I was provoked with that generation. And said, they always go astray in their hearts. They've not known my ways. The word provoked literally means angered. God was angry with their rebellion. After all God had shown them, still they had not learned to trust him. And so, you know, if you ask, well, what was the cause for Israel's sin? Uh, Maybe we're tempted to blame the difficult circumstances as the main problem. But notice where God locates the problem. He says they always go astray in their hearts. You see, friends, this is the problem that we all share. Our disobediences in life, our distrust of the Lord, it isn't ultimately due to our circumstances in life. That's not where the problem lies. Instead, it's our hearts. That is where we go astray. In our hearts, we love the wrong things. We love gossip and slander and revenge and lust and greed and self-exaltation. Or we love the right things too much. We elevate family or money or relationships, and we refuse to sacrifice them in the service of God. Our hearts are drawn like like metal filings to a magnet, to all the wrong things. You don't have to convince metal filings to, you know, go to the magnet. You don't have to push them. They're just naturally drawn there. And so it is with our hearts. All of us are drawn towards paths of unrighteousness, as Isaiah 53 states. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. You see, this is the fundamental plight of all of humanity. This was true of the people of Israel, even though they had seen God's works. And so notice, notice that the problem was not insufficient revelation. That wasn't why Israel rebelled. 
as if God hadn't shown them enough of his character and works to show, hey, I'm really trustworthy. You should trust me. No, they saw God's character and works. God revealed himself to us, but still they didn't follow him. And beloved, that's the same thing that goes on with all 7 billion people on planet Earth. When we look at the fall foliage, when we see the, the sun and the blue sky and the, our own bodies, uh, we know that there's a God who's made this world. When we look in our hearts, our consciences, we know right from wrong. Friends, God has revealed his character to all creation, to all humanity. The reason we don't, disobey, we don't obey God isn't for lack of information. It's that our hearts are rotten. And so the result of such rebellion is verse 11. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Does it surprise you that God responds to rebellion with wrath? He's not indifferent to it. He is righteously angry about it. You see, when God cared for the Israelites and carried them on his shoulders like a shepherd, he was demonstrating his tender affection and loving provision for them. He poured out his heart and his soul for them, as it were. He left nothing on the table. He spared no expense. He was lavish with his mercy, and yet they rebelled. They despised his care and ignored his counsels. They departed from his ways to go their own. And in doing so, they angered God. You know, again, when we, we sin against other human beings, we can usually see the harm done. When we gossip, someone's character is assassinated. When we steal, we take from others. If a child hits a sibling or a spouse views pornography, there are real, tangible harms. And we tend to think that that's as far as our sin goes. But friends, have you considered that your sin is first and foremost against God and that it provokes his wrath? He's the one who made us, who provides for us, who sustains us. That's why rebellion is so wicked. Because in our sin, we turn away from this good and gracious God. We live for ourselves and act as though we were wiser and more righteous and more loving than God. And so because God is a just judge, he is angry, for we are evildoers. His wrath was particularly displayed when he prevented the Israelites from entering into God's rest, which referred in Psalm 95 to the promised land, the land of Israel. He was bringing them from Egypt through the wilderness into the land of Canaan. Uh, likewise, too, we also deserve God's wrath to not enter his rest, our heavenly home. Beloved, that's why the Spirit urges you today to not harden your heart. Because the, those two options are still available, rest or wrath. You can't have both. So this morning, I plead with you. If you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. If you feel conviction of sin over, you, over this, and you, you know that there are parts of your life that you're not living in accordance with God's word, that you're in rebellion, I plead with you, don't try to cover up or conceal your sin. Don't harden your heart. Confess it to the Lord and to another. 
The ability to hear God's voice is not an indefinite privilege. It's not something that you can just bank on on your deathbed. But beloved, if you hear his voice today, don't take it for granted. That itself is a mercy. Respond with faith. Soften your heart. Ask God to soften it before it's too late. Let's turn now to our second section in verses 12 to 13 entitled, The Antidote Against Apostasy. The Antidote Against Apostasy. In verse 12, the author takes us out of Psalm 95 in the wilderness generation of Israel to speak to his audience. Verse 12 literally reads, Watch out, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. You see, the command is to be on alert, to be watchful and vigilant. And the reason we're to take care and be alert is because this potential, this danger is nearby of an evil, unbelieving heart. And so what we need to do is we need to be on the lookout for the signs and symptoms of that heart. It's like when you go to the doctor and, you know, the doctor, he or she says, hey, you've got these um, certain genetic conditions, uh, you've got this in your family history, so be on the lookout for these signs or these symptoms. For me, uh, I had an injury as a child, and my left eye went blind for a few hours, and so because of that, doctors have told me, hey, Scott, watch out. Uh, watch out for a glaucoma or detached retina if you see floaters or flashes of light or you get eye pain. Be alert to those symptoms, because if you, if you get those symptoms, they're indicative of a very serious underlying problem. Don't ignore them. Well, what would it look like for us to watch out, to be on the lookout for the signs and symptoms of an evil, unbelieving heart? Because the stakes are high, aren't they? If we aren't careful... An unbelieving heart will lead you to fall away from the living God. Friends, that, there is nothing more horrible than that. That's what apostasy is. It's, it's turning away from God in a, in a kind of unrepentant and final way. To turn away from the living God is to cut yourself off from the source of all joy, all hope, all peace, and all love. Listen to how Hebrews 10 puts it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Beloved, I don't want that for you. And so watch your heart. What specifically should we be on the lookout for? What would be some signs and symptoms that we should be on guard against? Let me mention four symptoms of an unbelieving heart that you should be on the lookout for. First, beware of apathy to the things of God. Beware of apathy to the things of God. Of course, anger and bitterness towards God are also bad, but I think the more common danger for us is that simply of apathy. 
we just begin to care less over time. Entertainment and distraction seem more and more and more compelling. Prayer and time in God's word, well, months and then years go by without regular time with the Lord. And the point isn't that, you know, you've got little kids or you're in grad school or life is really busy. Everyone's hectic. So, yeah, we, we've all got lots of responsibilities and, and sometimes we can't spend as much time considering the things of God as we desire. But beware if suddenly you notice that even your desire to spend time with God is gone. If the thought of heaven bores you, Christ's love and sacrifice on the cross, if it's stale in your mouth. Second, beware, watch out for apathy towards the people of God. Again, the point isn't that, you know, if you've moved recently, you've just had a baby, you've just entered into a new work assignment, you're still making friendships, it's hard to find time with, to get together with other Christians. That, that's not what I'm, I'm talking about. But increasingly, if you just kind of want to be left alone, you just don't want to be bothered by other Christians. You don't want to be involved in other people's lives. You definitely don't want them becoming more involved in your life. Uh, perhaps what began as a disdain for other Christians' politics or schooling choices has come to an avoidance and isolation and detachment altogether. A third thing to watch out for is when obedience becomes increasingly reluctant. Obedience becomes increasingly reluctant. Maybe you still do the externals, uh, but your heart's not in it. It's more duty than delight. Sin increasingly seems more and more attractive. While you may not engage openly in rebellion, in your heart, you begin to think and fantasize and ponder and dwell on what it would be like to go back or to leave. Obedience becomes less joyful and more box checking. And so forth and finally, beware when you begin to spend more and more time absent from Lord's Day worship. So beware of increased non-attendance from Lord's Day Sunday worship. Look, I've not been a pastor for that long, I've only been in full-time ministry about eight years. And this is by far, by far, by far the biggest warning sign. This is not a yellow flag. This is a bright red flashing light. I'm not talking about when your kids are sick and you're on work trips. And, you know, I think there was a couple months earlier where my wonderful wife missed like four to five Sundays with sick kids, right? I'm, I'm not talking about over, you missed three weeks in a row because of craziness. I'm not talking about that. What I mean is the pattern of consistently choosing to not worship with God's people. Let me, let me kind of, I, I think non-attendance for Christians often functions in two ways. It's either a doorway into sin or it's a mirror of existing sin. 
Okay, it's, it's a doorway into sin when you begin to avoid Lord's Day worship because the restraining and truth imparting time in God's word with God's people is gone. Right? God intends to use our time together in public worship to keep us in the faith. And so when Christians, when people regularly forego that means of grace, deliberately and purposefully, it almost always spells disaster up ahead. Or non-attendance is a mirror of sin because nobody likes having their junk called out. Right? And if you're secretly living in sin, the last place you want to be is at church. The last thing you want to do is to be offering up prayers of praise and confession and repentance and help. If you are hiding and coddling your sin, you're hardening your heart. Uh, Non-attendance reveals the sin that is already occurring in this case. And so again, I'm obviously not saying you can't be sick or go on a business trip or even take vacations. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is beware if your list of reasons for why you don't attend Sunday worship is growing. And this goes on for weeks and weeks and months and months and months. You know, this week it's because family's in town. Next Sunday, well, you've had a stressful week. Uh, Then you you think you might feel a tickle in your throat. Uh, And then there's the kids' nap time or the Pats game or you had a late night on Saturday. Christian, these four symptoms that we just looked at, it's not like when your check engine light comes on and you can ignore it for a day or a week or a month. This is like the fire alarm going off and you can smell the smoke and you can feel the heat. You've got to take action when you, when you experience those symptoms. Don't ignore those signs. And so what action should you take? Well, that's what verse 13 is all about. Look there. It reads, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guys, this is huge. If there's no bigger danger than a hard, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, then there is no more precious provision than what God ordains to stop that. That's like the worst thing that can happen to you. So this is the best thing that can happen to you. How does God intend to keep you on the straight and narrow from falling away and making shipwreck of your faith? Well, the answer is all around you. It's your brothers and sisters. It's your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, perseverance in the Christian life is a group project. It's not like, you know, golf or tennis or paddleboarding. It's not a solo sport. It's a team sport. The command in verse 13 couldn't be any clearer. It's written to the congregation, not to the pastors, to all of the brothers and sisters. Exhort one another. So Christian. God intends to keep you walking in faith and obedience through your brothers and sisters and their speech and their prayers and their conduct and their encouragement. If you're a Christian, you need other Christians in your life. It's not optional. You like literally need them or you will fall away 
Hebrews 3 says. And Christian, God also intends to use you to keep other Christians in the faith. How amazing is that? What an amazing privilege and responsibility we've been given. What does God love more than his children? Nothing. And so he says, hey, you know, Nick, you're in charge of keeping those around you. Hey, Carly, hey, Anna, hey, Paul. Like, God wants to use your life to keep me in the faith. This is what all of us have been called to. We do this for as long as it is called today. That is, for as long as we're on the heavenly journey towards the new Jerusalem. And we do it once a month. Once a week. Now, what does it say? Exhort one another every day. This means if you're a Christian, don't just be a Sunday morning Christian. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, you show up to church a couple times a month, say hello to folks, but then your daily, weekly life is uninvolved from the lives of other Christians, unaware of the temptations they face, unmoved by the sufferings they endure, unconcerned about others' spiritual state. Instead, beloved, we need to use every day to encourage others to press on in the faith. And the reason we do this every day is because we face sin's temptations every day, right? Like if there was a day when sin and Satan said, I'm going to take 24 hours off. You're not going to fall into sin today. Nothing bad's going to happen. Well, we could take the day off, right? And yet it's precisely because sin is relentless that our love needs to be relentless. Sin is enticing every day, so we must be exhorting and encouraging every day. This is the way that God will keep you from hardening your heart, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, sin's deceitfulness is what makes it so dangerous because it lies to you. It distorts your vision and your affections. It promises you life and peace, joy and fulfillment, all the while stealing those very things from you. Sin's strategy, I mean, literally it has not changed since the garden. Holds forth something and hides the cost. Promises something good. Look, do you, do you want to become wise? Do you want to become like God? Yeah, you're not going to die. Friends, that was a lie. We fall prey to the same thing, don't we? Sin, it hides the broken relationships, the sorrow to others, the anger of God. Perhaps most worryingly, it conceals the hardening effect on your heart. You know, this is what's, what's so troubling, right? Sin will deceive you into thinking it's not deceiving you. It will harden you so that you don't realize your heart is hardened. If sin simply showed us our weakness, we might realize, oh, snap, I need help. I need other brothers and sisters who can help bear this load with me. But actually, sin's deception is often teaching us 
that we don't need one another. The deception is, we can fight this on our own. Uh, plus, this sin, it's not a big deal. Uh, no, no biggie. Yet at the same time, what does sin and Satan say? You should be ashamed of yourself. Nobody struggles with this sin. You are alone. You can't ask for help. No one will understand. They will laugh at you. Friends, when you hear these voices, this is the deceitfulness of sin trying to harden your heart against God. So what does it look like to practically exhort one another every day? Let me suggest two brief tips. First, Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, used to ask, who's your guy? He asked that to the young men of the United States Navy. Who's the one person, the one guy or gal, who you are discipling and doing spiritual good to? If you're married, you should answer with at least your spouse, but you should also answer more than just your spouse. Discipling others, doing them spiritual good, and exhorting and encouraging one another isn't mainly adding events to your calendar as much as it's adding people to your life. So look for ways to fold others into the rhythms and habits that you already have for their good and for your good. So if you're working out and playing gator ball on Friday mornings, invite other Christians. Are you going on a walk? Invite another mom. Uh, I'm guessing most people in this room are going to eat seven meals this coming week. Seven dinners, hopefully more than that meals. <laughs> you know, just invite other people over. Say, we're having a rotisserie chicken. Can you bring a bag of mixed greens? Not going to be fancy. But there will be fellowship. We'll gather around the word together. Some people might have the freedom, the availability to set aside time to meet with other Christians and read a good book. Uh, do that if you're able. Invite probing questions and give honest answers. Uh, ask someone to exhort and encourage you because you know that you're prone to sin's deceits. Uh, in short, prioritize people as you set your weekly schedule. If you're an extrovert, that might look more like big groups and lots of outings. If that's you, praise God. If you're an introvert, that look, might look like having a close friend over or a phone call with another dear believer. Uh, if that's you, praise God. The second piece of practical advice is simply just consider your tone, right? All right, called to exhort people. Yes, that's my spiritual gift, telling people what to do. The Apostle Paul said that believers are to speak the truth in love. So our exhortation and encouragement must be done with a spirit of love and gentleness. Don't forget Jesus' words. Before you try to remove the speck out of your brother's eye, get the log out of your own. Don't go on a holy crusade against other people's sins while your own life is in disarray. Uh, if that's you, and you're like, yeah, my life is in disarray. Perhaps the best way you can exhort and encourage another Christian is by your own example of confession and repentance. Living openly before others. In summary, Christian, we need you. This body needs you. I need you. God's antidote against apostasy is one another. So let's turn to our final section in verses 14 to 19, entitled, Perseverance Required. 
this is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews, so we actually won't spend a ton of time here because it's so prevalent. But why is it so important that you not fall away from God, that you indeed persevere to the end? Verse 14 states, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see, when somebody becomes a Christian, they don't just get their ticket out of hell, get out of jail free card, and then coast. No, we persevere in faith and love and obedience. Notice the grammar of verse 14. It's unusually important. We have come in the past to share in Christ if we hold our confidence firm to the end in the future. The past is determined by the future in the sense that the future confirms or denies the past. If you claim to know Christ and share in his heavenly calling, but you don't hold fast to him, well, it's evidence that you never truly knew him. If you claim to be a child of God, yet you fall away from God, you prove that you never were a sharer in Christ in the first place. We need to persevere if we are to make it to our heavenly home. Just imagine a journey, right? You might start the journey well, you start, you're walking well, you're driving well, whatever it is. If you turn back, you're not going to get to the destination. The Christian life is a walk towards heaven. It's a journey together. That's why we mustn't harden our hearts, as verse 15 reiterates. That's what the litany of questions in verses 16 to 18 prove. While the wilderness generation began well on their spiritual journey and literal journey towards God and to the rest that he provided, they didn't make it. It's a warning to us. And thus the conclusion is found in verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief was Israel's most foundational problem. It was Adam and Eve's problem when they believed the lie of the serpent, but were unbelieving towards God's promise. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is kind of the chief duty that we would call you to. Uh, The number one thing that we want you to take away from this morning, from God's word, is to take him at his word. Specifically about the salvation and forgiveness of sins that God offers through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus shared in our flesh and blood so that we could become sharers in his heavenly calling. He lived a perfect life, never rebelling against God, never with an evil, unbelieving heart, never testing God, but always walking in faith and obedience. Jesus became a man like us, yet he never rebelled, never sinned. He alone deserved God's perfect rest. And yet he went to the cross, And there, God's wrath and anger were poured out on him as the substitute for our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve so we can enjoy the heavenly hope that he deserves. If you're this morning, you're here and you're not a Christian, the call is to believe on Jesus Christ. If you today hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but believe and you will be saved. And Christian. Do you want to grow in obedience? Do you want to persevere in the Christian life? Realize that unbelief is at the heart of all our sins. 
all our struggles, it comes down to faith, believing God's word, believing his promises more than the lies and deceits of sin. If you want to grow in holiness and run the race well, you need to fight against unbelief. Take comfort and courage from that father in the Gospels whose daughter was sick, faced with God's gracious promise of help, but with a quaking heart. He spoke to the Lord Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. May that be our prayer as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge the many ways we are just like the people of Israel. We are unbelieving. We buy into Satan's lies. And the result is our rebellion, our sin. Father, you would be just to pour out your wrath upon us all and send us to hell. And yet you are so gracious. We pray for every Christian in this room, for everyone who professes faith in Christ, Lord, that you would persevere them and preserve them all the way home. We pray that as a congregation, we will be marked by love and encouragement and exhortation to keep the faith, that we would do it every day, that you would strengthen us for this work. We pray that you would show us your son, that we might walk well in his footsteps all the way home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.